But this global pandemic has also created an opportunity to build back better. Building back better, this pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts. Now we have to accelerate because we are living the first consequences of basically climate disorders. It's time to rush and President Biden is 100% right to do so. Last week, I shared the outlines of my plan to build back better. It's about building this country back better. As Europeans, we increased our targets for 2030 and 2050 a few months ago. We need India and China to be with us. With Chancellor Merkel, we had a discussion with President Xi. The Great Reset. And I think we, we, we felt the commitments of President Xi on climate to work with the US and with Europe. First, to accelerate his target of 2030. Our strongest beliefs are challenged by the rise of a yet unknown new world order. A, a new world order that China has to be part of the process of creating it. And they have to buy in. They have to own it. Really need to bring China into the creation of a new uh, 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 world order. Partnership and cooperation among nations is not a choice. It is the only way. Now is the time to join together through constant cooperation and strong institutions and shared sacrifice and a global commitment to progress to meet the challenges of the 21st century. Build it back better. We must build back better. Build back better. Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. That video never gets old, does it? It's just so absurdly contradictory to what we keep being told. Uh, even the, the part that always I laugh about is how Biden still maintains, maintains to this very day that, no, no, Build Back Better was just something he decided to do. It had nothing to do with the fact that literally every other country was parroting the same narrative. It's just, it's really insulting. And we're going to talk about this discussion today from a specific standpoint. And we're going to talk about the social impact finance and social credit scores that are a huge part of where this all seems to be going. And obviously that can't really happen without the digital ID and how this is all kind of converging. And right now, even being rationalized from different perspectives, you know, in the post-COVID mania, I guess the pause that we're in today. So joining me today to discuss, discuss this, as well as some really interesting discussions around ivermectin in regard to Mexico and some other really powerful things that he's doing out there outside of this. Welcome to the show. Derek Bros. how are you today? Hey, brother. Thanks for having me on. It's always good to be here with you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, man. We always have great conversations. Just, just since we played that to open there, I just think, I just loved, wanted to hear you. I saw you shaking your head. It's just hilarious, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, so good. <laughs> it's hilariously sad. I mean, like for one, like the fact that we can go back to Obama and that, I mean, the, those clips make it seem like that was so long ago, right? Because the, the video quality is not that great, but people who maybe weren't 
awake or paying attention to during the Obama years need to realize that was just what, 12 years ago when he was elected 13 years ago, wasn't that long. And then the George Soros clips and even that clip could have gone even longer and gone back to playing George Bush in the 1990s, talking about the new world order. And, you know, the phrase might've evolved or turned from the new world order, world order, great reset, build back better, but it's all the same kind of agenda. And yeah, just to see how open it is, how people, you know, you had Biden, you had um, Kamala Harris, you had France, you had Germany, you had all these different big countries, you know, using the same. And now we, of course, more people oh, yeah, are paying attention. These are all the, the um, or most of them, the uh, young global leaders, right? So right, now right. they're using the same terminology of the World Economic Forum. And I'll even point to my hometown where I'm originally from, Houston. Uh, last year, the mayor of Houston was started to use that Build Back Better phrase um, when he welcomed the Democratic Party to the city. And he also hosted the one of the other directors of the World Economic Forum. So it's definitely from the national down to the local level, this phrase is being you know used all around. And, and what's important to point out is, you know, I'm sure Derek and I both have our opinions about what this means and how it's tied to things. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it more in depth today and improve these things to some degree. But whether or not you think that, what's ridiculous to me from anybody's perspective is how they try to childishly kind of pretend that's not what this is. Are we really going to pretend that Biden just just so happened to pick the same thing? Like, it's certainly possible that it was seeded in his mind by somebody because I don't think Biden's the one making these decisions. But it's just absurd. And they call it a conspiracy theory. The Great Reset's a conspiracy theory until, you know, it's obviously there or a I believe it was in, in uh, Denmark. One of the politicians was asked about the Great Reset. And the guy's like, I don't even know what that is. And he waves around an email. He's like, well, here's where you thanked him for the book. You know, it's just like these people are running from admitting this. And it's crazy to me. Now, they're moving past. Oh, actually, I wanted to say, too. What Obama says there, I think, is really prescient in, in a lot of ways that he says working with these other other countries is not a choice. And you can hear that two different ways, but you can, you know, words have meaning. And I found that really interesting or blaming China, as always, for being the big polluter, despite the U.S. military being the largest polluter on the planet. You know, it's all these contradictions. But we'll get into this today in a very interesting way. And there's a reason I bring that up because of the social credit concept. Right. Who decides Who's doing wrong and right? Well, we see that on the world stage today, don't we, with foreign policy? Well, you're, you can't do something that's a, a, a fraction of what we've been doing for 10 years straight over there because that's not allowed and you're breaking norms and so on, right? So I'd like to start out today by talking about your article you just wrote. And this is, is really a fantastic article. The Coming Terror of Social Impact Finance and Social, Social Credit Scores. And we've already talked about this a couple of times. And we pointed to people like James Corbett. And, you know, the Sesame Credit conversation, this has been very on the surface for a long time. And what I love about this article that you get into, and we're going to go through parts of this, is how you show that this is pretty much, not pretty much, it's already been happening. It's already mm -hmm. happening in the United States. Just as always, some way they frame it, they just call it something else and frame it for a good reason. And they, for your conspiracy theorist, for how dare you suggest we're using it for that reason and so on. So what, what, uh, go ahead and whatever you want to start with this. Yeah. So, I mean, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to write this. This is one of the reasons why I like writing for you and Last American Vagabond is because, um, you know, I can take my articles in any direction I like and I try to make them entertaining, easy to read, but also you know, informative, of course, and giving people the information they need. And for this article, it was something I've been working on in my head for a while, realizing that, okay, we've talked about social credit scores and I, you know, done all kinds of work on 5G and the smart cities and blockchain. We've had extensive conversations that people can find on lastamericanvagabond.com. But I personally hadn't really dove into the social impact finance aspect of it. And I will give credit to um, Allison McDowell that she is one of the first people to really go into this area. Um, I also say I didn't use any of her research. I kind of went to this wanting to do my own research and, you know, not be kind of 
influenced by anybody else's work, you could say. But I recognize that this is a really big part of the puzzle for sure. And there's not too many of us talking about that. So that was my first drive is like, okay, I want to bring together, help people understand how social credit scores, which I think more and more people get, how that relates to this, what seems to be kind of a innocuous, random, obscure tool that most of us have no idea about, a financial instrument that is going to play a major role. And so, yeah, I wanted to start by bringing those two things together. And then at the same time, I just... So, you know, happened to stumble across this Ted Kaczynski movie, this new movie called Ted K. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we can talk a little bit about that as well, because that's kind of where I start the article. For those who are unaware, if you're not in the U.S. or just, you know, never heard the history, uh, Ted Kaczynski, it was known as the Unabomber. And allegedly, and I say allegedly, I'll, I'll explain why in a moment, between 1978 and 1995, he mailed different bombs around the U.S., uh, specifically at like CEOs of airlines and different technology companies. He was seen as like a brilliant genius kid. He went into Harvard at 16. He had like 165 IQ mathematics genius, you know, and everybody um, that, of course. That's yeah. Everybody funny. remembers that's the famous, that's yeah. the famous picture of, and which apparently he had kind of changed his whole hair and his look while he went to go put one of the bombs in the, in the uh, UPS box. So that's why he looked like that, but he ended up getting arrested in 1995. And the reason he got arrested is because he was sort of emailing or not emailing. He was writing letters to the, the law enforcement and saying, hey, I'll stop bombing if you publish my manifesto. Because it was, you know, like a lot of people who are deemed insane. He just wants to be recognized. He wants people to hear his his uh, his words and what he's talking. And also he saw it as like he needs to warn the people. He was very much. And again, this is 1978 up to 1995. So the technology as we know, it wasn't even anywhere near what we know today. This is what he was warning about. And that's kind of where the article picks up is that whatever people's thoughts on the man, of course, we should make it clear. We don't endorse his violent acts by any you know means. Um, but he was right about a lot of things that he warned about. And he uh, was a, a very brilliant person. I think that because he got into the mathematics area and probably into some engineering that maybe he saw what was you know, the direction things were headed. And there's also, and this is a whole nother conversation that I encourage people to look into. I didn't even get into this in my article because it's a big can of worms, but after the fact, years later, we found out that when Ted went to Harvard, that for two years, he was a part of a essentially a mind control experience that he had no idea he was involved in. And there are now theories that they basically messed up his mind. And maybe this is what led to him becoming so anti-civilization, anti-tech and kind of, you know, somewhat of a hermit. Um, for two years, he was living in like a, a building with all the other younger students. And they had no idea that they were being experimented on. They were they had them doing like research, like they would have them write papers, for example, and then read the papers to a professor or to the person who was actually studying them. And then they would harshly critique them and kind of attack them, like and say, oh, no, this is stupid. This is they just pick it apart. And they had them hooked up to different machines studying their responses, their, you know, biological, biophysical responses of like uh, anger, frustration, whatever. And they did this for two years. Right. And so that didn't come out till way later after he's already in prison. It's like, Oh, by the way, we happened to experiment on this guy. So there's definitely some theories about what that all might mean, but putting that aside for the moment, Ted started to live in a cabin in the woods in Montana and he wanted to be alone and by himself. He learned to be self-sustainable, growing his own food, chopping wood, really live like what most would consider a primitive lifestyle, right? He was trying to get away from civilization. And from there, he learned to ma start making bombs. And as, as is said, he started mailing these bombs. The reason I say allegedly is because I don't think he's ever actually admitted to it. Of course, he pled guilty in 1995, but that's what the government does. They basically said, we're going to kill you 
because you send bombs, or if you plead guilty, we'll give you just you know multiple life sentences and you can live. Most and so, cases in, in U.S. law are plead or plead out for the most part. Exactly, it's a, it's a travesty of justice. Please go on. I exactly. Yeah, no, that's an important point. I think like his case is just one example that you see like much less high profile cases where it's just like some local person gets busted with some some weed or something, and they're like, hey, you're either going to go to prison or we're going to plead you down and you're going to accept this thing. You know, it could be as simple as that. In his case, it's like we're going to put you to death or you're going to plead guilty. You know, if you try to fight this, we will fight, you know, for the death penalty. And if you don't, then um, we will uh, let you live. And he wanted to represent himself and he wasn't allowed to. So we really have no idea what he would have said in court. What he might. Yeah. So that's like another mystery of like, did he really do this? I don't know. Some people think that he was framed. I don't know. So it's a whole other thing. But the point is, the point is we know that he did have, whether he indeed did do the bombings or not, because I've listened to later interviews, like audio interviews. And he never actually says that he, that people will ask him like about the bombs. And he's like, I don't want to talk about that, you know, which is understandable, but it's also weird, but we do know hundred percent certain that he wrote these words and he's, he wrote this manifesto that was published by the Washington Post, the New York Times in 1995. That was the arrangement he made with the law enforcement. If you publish this, I'll stop the bombings. Otherwise, they're going to keep coming. And so they did it. And then because of that, his brother was able to recognize, hey, I, this is like my brother's you know, crazy talk. And they ended up locating him and finding him. And then he even updated his manifesto and published another book in 2016. So he, he definitely stands by his words. I just want to make the point that there's still some uncertainty around how it actually happened. Absolutely. Well, I mean, look, it, with everything we know about the, the government's actions of the past, manipulations, you know, testing on people, all of this, at the very least, aligns with what we know they're capable of and have done before. But James Corbett points out, like, discussions around, and I believe you've spoken about the Oklahoma City bombing and the MKUltra program. I mean, there's obvious connections to these kind of acts that are then used for massive political push, pushes that are questionable that could very at the very least been allowed to happen like the fbi does all the damn time so they can catch them after they drive it forward you know these and i'm not saying that that's what happened but we need to consider these things and i want to i want to make some interesting points there around this that the idea of the nuance around it is so impossible with conversations like this and it was even more impossible then you couldn't even poke into this without being called a like you're about to be a terrorist because you like this document or what he says here or whatever but obviously it's you're a logical person should be able to point at that and say, you know, if this is indeed what happened, I don't stand by that. And I don't agree with violent acts to do what, you know, whatever that's terrorism. That's what it actually is to conduct violent acts at, to p- drive at a political end. I mean, that's what it actually means, but the nuance you point out there is so frustrating. And of course I can't help but draw parallels to where we are today with Ukraine, Russia, whatever else that he, you said he was right. Now, Anybody honest can look at what he's saying and realize, well, clearly there was a lot of what he said there that absolutely came to pass, even if you think it's for a better world or whatever. He's warning about things that did happen. So those are two real things. Yes, we cannot agree with it. And yes, he was right. But see, that's not how the world works today. You can't say he's right without being called a terrorist. And that's the problem with the way that the two party paradigm and the manipulations work. Yeah, it's interesting, too, to just see how because I think you're correct in most mainstream conversation, like I would say, like the, the sort of lowbrow conversation that takes place on corporate TV, you know, right. The corporate media. And then maybe in some circles, people are like, Oh my God, you, you, you support this, you know, this monster, but in, in but reality, you're saying though, right? you're yeah, exactly. Saying- I'm not saying like I support his actions or anything of that, but, but what I was going to say is the reality though, is that now 20 something years after the fact, 
there are professors at university that teach courses on what he wrote. There are people like respectable people who are like, Hey, this guy is a pretty intelligent person. And he wrote some good things. And there's now courses studying like which books was he reading in that cabin that influenced him to, you know, start thinking this way. And so it's, it's for those who are interested in, cause obviously I'm not like anti-technology, but I do have concerns, right? I really appreciate like this field of thought and this area of thought. And so it was really, as far as back to the article, while I'm researching social impact, I'm researching um, social credit and like wanting to tell that story. I just stumbled across, I ended up watching this Ted K movie and, you know, I had, I know his story, but it was, it was a pretty good movie, I'll say, but it was good enough that I was like, I want to dive deeper. So I started reading his manifesto again and reading, you know, his newer book. And, and it just gave me a starting point to say like, Hey, this is a relevant current event going on. And also he's recently been announced to have terminally terminal cancer. So he's more than likely not going to make it through this year. Um, so he's, you know, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I thought you were done there. Well, I just, the last point I was going to add on to the Ted K part before we go into the article was, was just that it's important to note that they framed him as a, just like any, any villain they're framing Assad or anybody else in foreign policy sense as a maniac, right? He's just an out of his mind lunatic who just likes to hurt people, you know? And if you tried to call him intelligent in the, in the fervor, Again, you're a terrorist. How dare you say that? He's not smart. He's a murderer, you know, but you can read his documents and recognize that he is very intelligent. He's very, very, you know, his, his thoughts are very concise and very like it's it's very interesting that it's no way meaning that what he did was OK or that he's not, you know, and so on. But that's an interesting play there. So, again, just adds to the larger question about whether there was far more going on there. And I find it interesting that he's now saying, you know, not wanting to get into it and so on, but bringing it to the article in general. And so yeah. you, you want to add that? I'll say, I'll just say one more thing on him, on Ted, because I think it's it is like a very interesting topic we could talk all day about. Yeah. One thing on there is I don't even know that he would agree with our analysis, per se, from based on the readings that I that I've read from him. Him, he doesn't believe like like some people would expect oh uh, some terrorist like this it must be a manifesto is going to be the ravings of a madman and a bunch of quote-unquote conspiracy theories right but then as you said it's very logical it's it's mm-hmm. coherent um he he makes intelligent points but in his analysis and based on the things he said he doesn't ever reference like the belief that there's a group of people using technology to control the world he just believes that yeah, this yeah. is a result of technology naturally unfolding. So, you know, even though he's warning of similar things as we are, we don't even necessarily see the exact same, you know, kind of analysis. He's just like, he believes, and he could be right or wrong, I guess we'll find out, um, that this is just going to be the inevitable result of technology, that it's just, it's disastrous to the evolution of humanity, and it's going to harm us in all these different ways that we're not prepared for, we're not thinking about. And I think that's true to some extent, but we're also arguing, and there are people taking advantage of that that are trying to use that technology. And then the other last point I'll make on Ted is that to put it into context, again, for people who I know we have audiences of wide range of age, but there might be folks who were born in 1995 and, you know, never heard of this whole thing. You got to think about everything that was happening in the mid nineties and to really understand it, especially in relation to the current president of the United States. You had things like Ruby Ridge going on in the nineties. You had Waco, right? Then you had the Oklahoma city bombing, which was also in 1995. And then you had the Ted Kaczynski, you know, alleged bombings. Like they were terrorizing the American people to believe that there was just this, that was the first push for domestic extremism, domestic terrorism, right? And the first anti-terror bill passed in 1995 after Ted Kaczynski was caught, after the Oklahoma City bombing in April 20th, uh, 1995. And as we all know, it was Joe Biden who authored that bill, who, you know, brags about how that bill, which he authored, was basically the basis for the Patriot Act, which would come six years later in in, uh, 9-11. So it's important to understand that, like, all of this was going on, you know, what Ted was doing, 
I think it is, there is an argument for whatever he may or may not have done. Either way, the story was used as a one more bullet point for why you need to be afraid, Americans, that we need to pass stronger laws, anti-terror act and all that stuff. And that would all set the stage for what came six years later with 9-11, the Patriot Act. And the continuity you laid out there with Biden from the, 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 the whole, you know, the impetus for the whole focus on domestic terror. And now he's the one driving it in. It's just really hard to miss there, you know. And I would argue the reason that they used if, you know, my opinion would be this. Like, you might argue they wouldn't want this kind of a manifesto to be released because that's I mean, obviously, it's, it's if you believe, if you understand what he's saying, it can be damning to their agenda. But my argument would be to couch this in a place that's outside the Overton window. You're not allowed to talk about that because it's dangerous. And that's where we are today with a lot of the stuff they're trying to do. But so th- this brings me to the point that you made there about the crossover, right? It's obvious today whether or not he it was happening then and he, did, he you know, didn't see it or it wasn't happening, however you want to look at it. Today, we can see beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are people who are utilizing this direction, that are manipulating this direction, and in fact, are trying to make it so they create a world where not only can they grade you based on what they decide is right and wrong, but they can also bet on it. I just find this to be absolutely absurd that we're talking about a situation where you basically turned human lives and their choices into the next stock market, into the next Las Vegas for very rich, wealthy people. And the point you get into is whether or not, or I mean, it doesn't even, not even whether or not, if and when they decide to influence for negative things to make money, just like they do in every other situation. So let's start off by talking about the social credit scores and what, and you talked about with Kaczynski warning about the digital technology, as you said, in a way that forces humans to mold themselves, or as he wrote about, and you discussed into the machine, as opposed to the machine's or rather us changing the machines and technology to suit what we want as humanity. It's sure. a really interesting point. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, so I, I, I think that point is worth reiterating because I do believe that most people on a whole, on average, probably believe that technology is here to benefit people. And obviously it has benefited us in, in a number of different ways. And we sort of operate from the assumption that like, no, we're the ones in control, right? The technology is our tool. We're the ones bending it to our will. But increasingly, we're finding out that people are out there, humans are creating AI and really advanced technology that is surpassing humans. And increasingly, our lives are being ruled by algorithms and by um, AI and by, you know, all these unseen forces like we're going to talk about here today. So that quote, though, I think is really important. That's this is from Ted Kaczynski. He says, quote, our society tends to regard as sickness any mode of thought or behavior that is inconvenient for the system. I think that's really important, too. It's like, you know, we're like so if you're dealing with depression because we live in such a crazy tumultuous world filled with filled with lies and you know all the stuff that you start to wake up to a lot of times people self-medicate with alcohol or drugs or prescription yeah. drugs or or I'm depressed so they go to the doctor the doctor tells them yeah you're not fitting in you know there's something wrong with you in chemical imbalance whatever Especially there's never toward western medicine yeah exactly and there's never any sort of at least in the Western medicine frame, there's never really an emphasis on let's get to the root of it. Maybe it's society that you're responding to. Maybe we need to talk about that, have that a conversation. Instead, as he points out here, it's about molding the human to, uh, you know, to be a part of that system. Because if you're, if you have anything that's doesn't align with that system, it's seen as inconvenient. And he continues. And this is plausible because when an individual doesn't fit into the system, it causes pain to the individual as well as problems for the system. Thus, the manipulation of an individual to adjust him to the system is seen as a cure for the sickness and therefore is good. And then I just threw in the quote that's pretty well known from Krishnamurti that it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And I think that just fit perfectly with what he was talking there. It's like 
you know, he, he, he was saying that in his own words that like, you know, technology is molding people in ways that serves the system and not human needs. And over time, that's going to become increasing. You know, the more people become dependent on Google right now, most people are dependent on Google to tell them which direction to turn, which you know path to take to get to work. And we're already giving up that decision-making process, right? And as they promised us that it's going to get more and more convenient because this is coming, they're going to say, hey, by the way, if you take this route on your way to work, you're going to run into your old buddy that you haven't seen in five years who also happens to be at the coffee shop. And y'all both have time for a 10-minute coffee break. So, and people will be like, wow, that was so convenient. We never would have done that if it wasn't for the AI, you know, and the algorithm, right? And so when we move further into that realm where our decisions are being socially engineered through social credit and these other kinds of tools are just unseen forces, I mean, that is the molding of the human to the machine. That is the right. human abandoning decision-making, abandoning you know, personal responsibility and individual choices and saying, I'm going to, whether consciously or unconsciously, you know, forego my decision-making process and let the system decide for me. God, it's horrifying. It just really is. I mean, I, it's not just horrifying because it, it's scary to hear. It's horrifying because we're watching this be built around us and people don't recognize it. On, on the Google Maps point, that's just a great point. And there's so many other examples like that. Just anybody, like most people, if they, if they got rid of their phone or forgot their phone, would be totally out of sorts about how to get around and what to do. And that's incredible. Like this, it show, it's like the idea of not knowing how to grow food or fix things around your house. Like if you don't, you need to understand how valuable and important it is to be self-reliant today. And everything they're building is about going, don't worry, let us take care of it. Right up until we pull the rug out from under you because you don't do what we tell you to, Right. And then uh, the the idea of the mapping is so relevant. I, that's already happening, by the way. I already I read something about how, like for instance, if let's say you're going a certain direction and there's three map choices, even one that's longer, maps will redirect you to one that let's say takes you by certain things that they want you like certain advertisers, certain you want to drive by the Walmart on the way you're going. These things are happening right now. You know, like I'll, I'll you, you watch your maps, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I, it's I'm going the other way. I picked this one. Why did that happen? It wasn't your choice. It just redirected you. Then they argue it's because oh updates because oh that's traffic over there. You know whatever, but it could be that, or it could be, or maybe it's going in that direction where they decide they just like you said want to direct you in certain ways that benefit them for a thousand different reasons. You know. Yeah, and we just sort of trust that. Okay, they're telling me this is a better route. I guess that's cool. But are there, I mean, anybody, I'm sure there's others who've had this experience when you. Occasionally you might have, and I've had this happen in the past, where you have the Google Maps running just sort of out of habit, right? Or to get to a certain point. And then you get to a point where you, okay, I know the directions by now. And you might notice that Google's offering you a route and you're like, this is the stupidest route. This doesn't make any sense. I know this this you know area better than Google. I can go this way. It's going to be faster. And so you can see that there are limitations to the AI already or some ulterior reason that they're telling you to go that way instead of the way that you want to go. And that's the subtle things, right? Because the example I gave is the, the convenient way they're going to sell it, right? Okay. Hey, you got your buddy over here, connect, and you can spend time together on your way to, to work. But then once we have these fully integrated systems and they can tell your search history as they already can, and they can tell that you gave to the freedom convoy or to freedom cells or last American vagabond, then perhaps they will make sure to do also suggest routes and paths for people to make sure they don't come into contact to right. realize like, Oh my God, all these people are activists and they're kind of spread around these areas. Let's make sure they never come into contact. Right. Let's make sure other. Eric doesn't drive by that huge protest. That he's going to stop and join when he sees exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. 
Or maybe let's make sure we drive them down the street that has exponentially more cameras over here so we can document better what they're doing. All, I mean, all kinds of, I mean, we, we could sit here and, you know, dream, dream up situations all day because each of these are real potentials that are quickly coming into reality. And again, most people will adopt it because of convenience, uh, because, I mean, that's how they sell all of this. And I definitely think that's a point that Ted Kaczynski was trying to make throughout it. So in the in this next part, really, which is some of the stuff we've covered on uh, in the past, but I just will reiterate a couple points that you've got highlighted there. And this is in regards to the social credit aspect. You know, I think I wrote my article in 2020 or 2021, the one I referenced in here, that showed that uh, Kaspersky, the cybersecurity experts, that that, that we already have social credit to some degree in the United States and really around the world. It's not implemented in the sense of the Chinese social credit system, the um, Sesame credit system, but it is as effectively a point system that is judging you. And so for those who aren't aware that Chinese have been using the Sesame credit, social credit score since 2019, you've probably seen something on the Black Mirror TV show if you watch that show, but it's a reality. And this is where people are either penalized or rewarded for their behavior. This is the definition of technocracy. If you go back and look at the original definition back to the early 1900s and 1920s, their, their documents talk about using technology to socially engineer society for the public good, you know, putting the experts and the scientific elite in that position. And that's what social credit is about. It's about social engineering. And so many people are looking to China and we're like, oh my God, this is so scary. Let's make sure this never happens here, which I'm totally on board with. Let's stop it. But as this uh, study from Kaspersky Lab shows that they've already, um, they've already implemented different systems that exist and so what it is, is there's private companies that will go out there and they'll search your credit history, your rental history. If you've got an arrest record, they also scan social media databases and they, and we don't know how, but they somehow throw that all into a blender and, and, you know, pop out, here's your number assigned to you. We don't know, again, any of the details on how that number is, is, is put together. And then there are, let's say like, for example, landlords who are hearing about this, Hey, there's these services that will rate your potential, um, you know, uh, your potential tenants, or if you're getting, if you're a boss, if you're trying to hire people, they, these companies will advertise to you and say, Hey, would you like to get a score for each of your potential candidates? And we can tell you a lot about them. So this is all unbeknownst to the average person. And as that study with Kaspersky shows that there are people who've already, I think they say something like 30 to 40% of people, at least in the people that they looked at, which was in the thousands, tens of thousands of people. So it's not a huge sample size for the whole world, but it's just an example of how it's happening already in country after country. People are already being denied jobs, being denied access to apartments, and who knows what other kinds of things based on these scores, which are being put together by private companies. So this isn't even just like, oh, no, the government's going to do it. This is the private industry already doing this and saying, hey, we'll provide this service for governments and for law enforcement or for really anybody who wants to use it if they've got the cash for it. And so that is effectively a social credit score already. It is. It's public-private partnerships. I mean, this is the the kind of outsourcing of the government accountability. I mean, it's still very tied to the same agenda, just like we're seeing around this thing today. And since you mentioned, I'll just jump to this part that I found really interesting. I didn't know this. It's a big new Brzezinski, who, by the way, is the father of, of uh, Morning Joe host, uh, Brzezinski, I forget her first name all of a sudden. It's Michaela or something like that. Yeah, or Michaela something. or something like that. But uh, he, who is one of the very people that laid out the plan for why Afghanistan was the for, you know, starting point for this whole thing, apparently Derek points out that his technocratic era book is what many now refer to as the discuss, that what he discussed as technocratic era is what we now use to refer to as technocracy. And it's just this continuity you just can't miss. I just find it so interesting the very same people that have always been involved from the security state to now to the biosecurity state 
it's just all part of the same point. But to go back to where we were. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I'll just say to that point, I definitely highly recommend everybody who has the opportunity to download the PDF or if you want to purchase the book to read Zbigniew Brzezinski's book, at least some of the choice areas. It's probably not worth reading the whole thing for your time, but there are some areas where, and it's funny, the language has evolved technocratic he called it technotronic for whatever reason but he's describing the same thing central planning central management of society and he talks about having a world police that can you know just all the crazy ideas right but it's just put out there casually and people act like oh look at this this is great diplomat writing a book it's called between two ages the technotronic era and uh, yeah it's definitely worth understanding because that is much of what we're facing and so social credit is an extreme part of what we're facing with the Great Reset. Now, we've seen whatever the narrative may be switching to, because right now, um, I know you've been doing a lot of coverage of, of Ukraine and everybody's attention's there right now, because obviously it's a big geopolitical uh, situation. But it's so clear that the script has now switched. And I'm having some difficulty imagining them totally letting go of the COVID narrative because they've gained so much through it. So I'm not sure what we're in for. I will also remind people that Bill Gates just recently released a book on the next pandemic. So I don't know that we're done with these pandemic narratives, but for the moment, it's, you know, let's look over here. Right. So the important point to remember, though, is that the reason I don't think they're going to let go of that narrative is because the uh, the vaccine passport is just the first step towards the digital ID, which then connects to the social credit score. And then we'll get into the social impact finance in a moment. So, and this is another point, Ryan, maybe you can pull this up if you got it, if if you don't, if you haven't covered it yet, that Forbes uh, article that recently came out showing that uh, if you search Forbes smart health card, you should be able to find it. But there is already essentially a national vaccine passport system in the United States. And you might not even realize it yet. It's called the smart health card card. And it's by the MITRE corporation, M-I-T-R-E that I know that People like Whitney, I know you've talked about it. There's not really a whole lot of info about them. They're one of these really secretive military industrial complex. That's the article right there. And what that article discusses is how through the smart health card, which is, again, is a private industry. So this is the public-private partnership. State governments are already jumping on board. And I think it says 29 states in the U.S. have already jumped on board. And it's voluntary for the moment. So Joe Biden didn't have to pass a federal mandate or any kind of like, you know, implement it. The states are already doing it. And what that article, it has a specific section where it says, even the red states are getting on board. So all those conservatives, all those Republicans who are talking all this mess, they're actually jumping on board with this smart health card. And, you know, most of the article, it kind of looks like it's just a promotion for it. Honestly, it seems like a commercial. But so that's one aspect is that, the smart health card is already happening, right? And then I'll mention one other point on that. I also saw an article the other day that showed the same people. The- Uh-oh. Did we lose you? Of course. Of course. It's too important what he's talking about. Let's give it a minute and see if we can get it back. But just as I was pointing out there, while we wait to see if we can reestablish connection here, guys, is that, as you know, if you've watched T-Lab, oh, you made you back? Or okay, lost, cool. lost you for about... 10, 15 seconds there. So just go back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was, so I was saying is that the MITRE Corporation, they're already rolling out a vaccine passport in the United States using the smart health card, doing it piecemeal by state by state. But then right. at the same time, they recently, just in the last week, have announced that they're going to be hosting a meeting with the World Health Organization, where the MITRE Corporation is now trying to encourage the entire world to get on this smart health card standard. So the reason I mentioned that is that if, if you think the COVID narrative is over or, you know, I, I will admit, AMLO, the president here in Mexico, said, hey, go back to 2019. Even Joe Biden said, take off your mask, right? And France is claiming they're going to get rid of the vaccine passports soon. But that doesn't mean the push for a digital ID has stopped. Like they might change the name and no longer call it a vaccine passport. 
but the idea is already seeded into our minds and it's already moved into place. And in order, the reason that that matters is because in order for them to get to the social credit score, they have to have a national digital ID card or, or a global exactly. ID card that can have everything, health records, bank records, et cetera, like I was mentioning, all that put into one place. And then that can be factored into what is your score? What is your rating? And then from there, they will determine what services you get access to. You know, if you're, if you're allowed to fly out of your own country, if you're allowed to get new job promotions or move to a different neighborhood, all those things are, are the way that the social credit score is being applied in China already. So I just, I don't want to diverge too much from the article, but I just wanted to make that point that if you haven't caught wind of it, the social credit score is already happening. The, um, the vaccine passport national ID card is still moving forward. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is important to understand because it's not, as you pointed out very, very clearly right there, it's, it's not about something. I mean, they're as always, they're framing it as justified by what's happening now, sort of like the BlackRock bailout plan that was written before COVID ever started. They say, well, this is because COVID. They're just they're just utilizing what's in front of them. As you see here, and we, I think you and I have already talked about ID 2020 defector speaks on techno solutionism with immunity passports. So this was this was like in the beginning of this. And she spoke up from the ID 2020 discussion, which, you know, started before COVID-19 and already had ties to vaccine status. This is a national ID discussion, right? Which, by the way, was already tied in with the digital concept. They were trying. That was the, one of the first steps to connect this. But you still have the physical, but it was going to be digital. That was the whole point. And this is her point. She actually left the program because she said it was techno solutionism using blockchain in regard to vaccine passports. And she didn't agree with it and they just didn't care. Right. And, and this, this is so important to realize this has been built for a long time. Now we, we had talked about this in a previous show in January about how exactly what you're talking about here, that a national vaccine passport or pass discussion, which, which is a digital ID behind it is already out there. And I love the point you made in regard to the, 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 the States doing it themselves. It, we've been stressing this, for the, from the, the idea simply that regardless of whether the mandate or the, uh, you know, the, the vaccine mandate across the, the country was actually passed or it went through every location, the hospitals, the schools, the, the colleges, they're all doing it anyway. So it could have just been a guy's right. It could have just been a way to make you think they're pushed it. Oh, hey, we won, but it's still happening. Or I pointed out last night, Gavin Newsom, California specifically, is rolling out some of the most harsh COVID-19 rules right now they've ever had or laws talking about forced vaccination and everything. Like you said, this is not over where we are. It's in, in fact, I would point out that it hasn't even slowed down. It's just the narrative has slowed down. And that's really exactly. Where I'm alarmed about that. Exactly. I am as well, because the thing is, if people who own like the folks who do just pay attention to like what CNN telling me is important today, then yeah, for them, all of a sudden Fauci's not a discussion you know, COVID is not a discussion. It's Ukraine. Oh my God, World War Three. It's that. That's the new thing right now. But if you really continue to see the moving behind the scenes, you know, and, and not just pay attention to the man in front of the camera, right. then you can tell that it the same agenda is moving forward one way or the other, right? They may now claim that, oh, the inflation and the food prices are happening because of Russia or whatever, but that was already in the cards and that was already taking place just the same way that the lock, the lockdowns are being, you know, are being blamed on uh, the inflation is being blamed on the lockdowns and the job loss and all that stuff. When those problems preexisted, you know, and were already prevalent before COVID happened. Right. And that's one of the things they do often is try to claim that COVID when really it wasn't even COVID or whatever, that's even what we're talking about. It was their actions around it, but claiming that it all happened because of this. And it, it's, it's very clear, like a 2008 discussion, right? I, I, this is such a frustrating reality that people that we're honest, we're calling this out in 2009 and all forward going, look, we didn't change anything. In fact, after 2008, they just exponentially increased all the things that led to this problem. Like we, and that's, that's a fact. And so nobody even tried to change anything. Why? Because they all 
wildly benefited from what they did. Nobody got held accountable. So the point is now they just drove this right into the ground again and then just blamed it on COVID and laid it at Trump's feet. And exactly like a lot of us thought would happen. You know, it's, it's just always a manipulation of the reality, but it's benefiting from your suffering in every way. Absolutely. Which, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in the next this. part here. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a good transition to think about is people, you know, betting and, and whether it's, you know, just basically gaining based on your gain or loss. Well, and like you said that these are, so what we're about to get into now is the social impact finance, which I'm going to do my best to explain as simply as possible, because as I said earlier, it can be sort of a cumbersome, like, it's, you know, finance, finance and economics can really go over a lot of people's heads, including mine sometimes. But it is important to understand these tools, because as you were just pointing out, going back to 2008 and before 2008, these random financial tools that most people had never heard of, subprime loans and things of that sort, were being used to place bets on people, as you mentioned, and like, are they going to be able to default on their or pay their loans? Or are they going to default and get kicked out of their house? Well, we're going to make money off it either way, right? Mm-hmm. And it led to all the horrible things that happened. So imagine that. But not just betting on your homes, but betting on your life and betting on whether or not you can succeed as an individual. And that's really what social impact finance is about. And I do want to just mention this one quote, uh, just a piece of the quote that I included. This is another quote from Ted Kaczynski that he put, the system has to force people to behave in ways that are increasingly remote from the natural pattern of human behavior. For example, the system needs scientists, mathematicians and engineers. It can't function without them. So heavy pressure is put on children to excel in these fields. It isn't natural for an adolescent human being to spend the bulk of his time sitting at a desk uh, absorbed in study. The system does not and cannot exist to satisfy satisfy human needs. And I think that's interesting because for all the benefits of so-called STEM learning, um, you know, engineering, mathematics, et cetera, which I'm not here to say we shouldn't learn those things, but we can obviously see a push in those areas of trying to get kids into those areas and like um, to get into uh, technology and engineering and mathematics, which I think is basically because they want the kids to be able to continue to develop these types of technology or, you know, the, so the idea that the kids are going to be used to code or build the metaverse, you know, and uh, I think there's definitely some, you know, Ted was picking up on something there. So when we talk about social credit scores, that's just one aspect, right? That's the, they're judging your life. And this has to ha- happen with a national ID card, facial recognition cameras that can see you and detect you everywhere along with AI, artificial intelligence kind of underpinning the whole thing. And of course this would be a 5g smart city, Uh, environment as well. So that's what most of us are familiar with. But behind the scenes is this social impact finance. Also, it has a number of different names. It's been called um, social impact bonds, social impact finance, social impact investing, pay for success, or simply um, impact investing. But it's... Go go ahead. I'll I'll, I'll call what you're done. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, but this is just... even if you don't know those names, it's probably familiar to you in context or at least in action. Because if you've paid any attention, we know that there's a push to um, stop climate change and whatever your thoughts or beliefs are on that. There's a lot of corporations trying to make themselves look good. And so now they're moving into this area of, OK, well, we don't want to just base our companies on how much profit we make. We want to look good. So let's say that we're going to also pay attention to how our money can do good in the world, right? And that's basically what this is, is it's the same old thing of a philanthropist, a wealthy person or corporation trying to use their money and claiming that it's going to do good. And it involves public-private partnerships as well. Well, the important point that I forgot to say earlier too, is that regardless of whether, and you make a great point in this article, and as anybody on it should, being objective, 
that you, you could argue if done in the way they claim with no negative intentions, there could be a positive outcome. But we know that that's never the way this goes because there's always people that have selfish endeavors and agendas. But the point is we're talking about banks and governments, the very same people that have been caught roundly with human trafficking, drug trafficking, funding wars and everything else. But yeah, they're going to be the ones dictating what is the right thing to do or, you know what I mean? It, 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 it's, it's illogical based on what we know about these people at the, at the very, uh, be, uh, I guess, at the lowest level argument, you could say that they're at least morally ambiguous. And so it doesn't mean that these are the people that should be, you know, driving this forward. But the last, yeah. the, the one that I thought was that were the most telling, the two really, is the social impact investing or just simply impact investing, which makes it really clear. You're, you, are, you are betting on the outcome of people's choices, not even just that they succeed or don't. That is a huge part of it, as you make clear, but whether they make the right choice and if you're involved with that person or so on. And so, again, it comes down to a subjective point. Is this fake news because they say so? Well, we know that's not true. It's the same point. Is, is your action tomorrow to support the convoy suddenly something that's going to hurt your credit score, even though you have a constitutional right to do it, even though, as we all know, most people, that's my opinion, some people at the very least are there supporting what they believe is simply the choice to make your free choice, right? So they decided bad, therefore now you're a criminal. It's as simple as that. I mean, this, this is really scary. The online safety bill in UK, a lot of this stuff is coming out hot right now. That is, I mean, that is the definition of social engineering. And yeah, the idea of uh, being able, to, uh, the idea of using that digital ID to allow people Again, allow people to access the internet is absolutely a part of this as well. Is right. this whole yeah. machinery? So that's important to mention. Go foul of the program. Absolutely. Uh, so let me just give this. This is a definition just to make it a little more clear from socialfinance.org, which I think explains it pretty simply. Social impact bonds are unique public-private partnerships that fund effective social social services through performance-based contracts. Okay, what that means is public government, private corporation, a corporation or a philanthropist says that they are going to contract with the government. Maybe the government doesn't want to provide social services in some way anymore, or they can't afford to. So a corporation like Microsoft or whoever comes in and says, we're going to give you $5 million and we will pay for this new social welfare program in the city. Um, and if it, if it delivers in X, Y, and Z ways, we get our investment back and then we get to make a profit on the top. And the idea being, like you said, in the best case, maybe not our world, but in the ideal best case scenario, then something good comes out of this. You know, somebody with $5 million invests $5 million into a program to help under, you know, funded um, schools in the inner city or something like that, right? And if the program actually delivers, then the government repays the, the company for their initial investment and then they make a little profit on it and the children in the elementary schools benefit in some way. They've, you know, gained new knowledge or resources. That's like the fairy tale kind of fictionalized version of it, but that's what they're selling it as. And they continue impact investors provide the capital to scale the work of high quality service providers. Government repays those investors if and when the project achieves outcomes that generate public value. And that of course goes into what is public value, who decides that, and they say that some of these programs can be hope, uh, focused on helping mothers experiencing poverty, uh, achieve healthy births, supporting immigrants and refugees through job training, retrofitting homes, social impact bonds, transfer risk from the public government to the private sector and align project partners on the achievement of meaningful impact. What really matters out of there is that it is a public-private partnership, partnership. And the World Economic Forum, as we know, they call themselves the International Organization for Public-Private Partnerships. And that is their goal is that is this, you know, this idea of in some cases, you know, for me, somebody who does 
tend to try to think of a world that could exist with less government or no government. Mm-hmm. I see the the potential to say, okay, well, private institutions could fund services. And I think, again, done in a, in a different way could be valuable. But again, we are not, we're dealing with the banks, as you pointed out, we're dealing with the banks, we're dealing with the governments with a horrible history. We're dealing with all these same players that we know we can't trust. And so the idea that we should just simply trust these people to, build a social credit score system, build smart cities, digital IDs, 5G, AI, et cetera. And then on top of that, behind the scenes, they're going to be placing, they're going to be investing in certain projects and then placing bets on whether or not those projects succeed or not um, is, is kind of frightening. And as you pointed out, also potentially betting on whether they fail. And that's something that they don't really make clear in that. And by the way, I'll make, I want to state myself that I promise there will be people out there that will try to misrepresent what you're saying there as endorsement of this in other ways. And that's ridiculous. That'll always happen. The point is you're being objective and that's what people hate is the reality that yes, in a perfect world, it's the same analogy I make in regard to government, right? I mean, in a perfect world, if let's just say a king or a monarch was the best person ever and Every moment of his life was dedicated to making your life better. Is that not a perfect situation? You don't have to do anything. He takes all the choices and every your life's perfect, right? But obviously, I'm not saying I even want that. I, don't, I hate the idea of somebody else making my choices, whether good or bad. The point is simply from a government perspective, you could realize that it all comes down to whether you think they're doing the right thing. It's always so subjective. Yeah. And it, so that's yeah. why people like us always come back to, regardless, it's about self-responsibility making our own exactly. choice, more personal freedom. And they don't like that. But I want to make some interesting points to what it says right here corporations seeking to rebrand themselves spend large amounts of money to prove their efforts. Now, so you could argue that this isn't even, I mean, I get the end of the day, if good happens from it, like just to make a fair point, then you would argue that it doesn't really matter that they didn't care whether it was good or not, you know, but at the end of the day, you could see that this is not really about whether it's good, just like whether doing things in foreign policies. Now it's really about whatever you can gain from it and, and project from it. That's what these people are all about. And I think that's what they will manipulate. But also, how about we just ask a simple question about whether or not it all ends up this way? Couldn't this not just be another Trojan horse, national endowment, democracy kind of situation where the same banks and the same governments use the surface level of altruistic agendas to do? It's what they do now. I mean, it's so ridiculous to pretend that that wouldn't happen. So just again, I keep seeing this veneer of this program Then right beneath the surface. We have these people like the Klaus Schwab's of the world and all the people on their young global leaders, which are some of the most villainous war criminals in the world, screaming about freedom or the United Arab Emirates leading partner for the Great Reset, he says, that currently doesn't embody any of the things they claim they're going to build in their own country, right? Freedom and equity and equality, except not for our citizens. You know, it's just it's ridiculous. And if you're paying attention, you can see all this. Yeah, that's why, it, I mean, I, I will invite people to go back and what you referenced there is our conversation on the great narrative and that that happened in the United Arab Emirates and little things like that, like those are the details you should pay attention to. Don't just listen to the fluffy words they're saying, but what are their actions? Who are they partnering with? What is the history of, you know, these people? Like, yeah, it is, as I wrote there, just a corporation seeking to rebrand themselves. And no, I don't think because Nike invests $5 million and maybe it goes and fixes some public parks in some city that that absolves them of partnering with China, for example. Or, you know, I don't think that because some corporation can invest millions of dollars that we should just forgive all their other crimes. But that's what they would like like us to believe, you know, and like us to think. So one of the ways that they measure this, you know, how do we measure social good, right? What does that involve? And that involves this uh, criteria, which is becoming increasingly popular, and you can find all over the World Economic Forum website and the United Nations website. Uh, it, it is basically this is how the companies are going to 
measure their social responsibility and claim like, hey, look, we met all the criteria and thus we did good. And this is known as ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Criteria. And so ESG investing sometimes referred to as sustainable investing, responsible investing or social responsible investing. And it's, as I mentioned, an increasingly popular way to promote the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. Most of the ESG criteria that I've seen that these companies are trying to uh, you know, aspire to to achieve lines up exactly with achieving United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And one of those goals, I will mention, if I remember correctly, I think it's 16 of the 17 different goals or somewhere in there is a digital ID for everybody in the world, which is also the goal of the ID2020 project, which is funded by Bill Gates, Microsoft, et cetera. So there's a lot of the same swampy people in here, but yeah. um, I'll elaborate a little bit more on what ESG means. So as I wrote here, environmental, social, and governance standards give socially conscious investors an opportunity to screen which type of corporations or, you know, or investments they want to endorse. For a company to meet the environmental standards, this means that they might, like if a company is going to invest in a government or in another company or a project, they're going to want to say, okay, well, can you tell us how do you use your energy and what's your waste production like and how do you stop pollution and are you fighting to conserve the natural resources and how are you treating animals, right? This is the this is the way they're promoting it, right? This doesn't mean this is what it actually yeah. looks like, you know? Um, but again, this is like, so the average person hears that. It's like, oh, wow, companies are actually taking, this is what I want. This is what I want from corporations. I mean, honestly, it's like if a corporation was really doing this, I would like to know, like the brands I try to support are those kind of brands that say like, hey, yep. this is a waste-free product. Half of our money goes back to give into this cause, right? And the point is sometimes that's just lip service. You know, you actually maybe need to do some research. Is the money actually going there? Is this and that? Like, who knows, right? But this is, that's again, best case scenario. This is corporations that we know aren't trustable claiming that they're going to have the best waste production methods and they're going to treat animals right and they're going to use their energy good and they're going to preserve the environment. That's the environmental criteria. Then you have social criteria, which tends to look at companies' business relationships. So an investor might say, okay, well, who are you partnered with? Who do you associate with? Um, you know, I don't like that you're uh, partnering with uh, this company and they have a history of dumping, you know, waste into the ocean. So you're going to have to change this for me to invest in you and start this project again. That's or, or the what way they said on social going. media, as you've been pointing out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so this this again is like best case scenario. Not claiming that's how it actually plays out in practice. I'm going to make. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was going to say the final one is the governance criteria, which is just about like. Okay, who's on your board of directors? What's the overall governance structure? Is it hierarchical? Is it equitable? Is it sustainable? Blah, blah, blah all that stuff. So it, environmental, it, social, and governance. Is it a democracy, right? And same kind of point yeah. today. Well, there's plenty of places that you would argue are that they just don't want to acknowledge and places that they say are that very clearly aren't. So it just comes down to subjective perception of the people in charge, which is our concern about the World Economic Forum. So let me make this all the more clear. I, I, I discussed this last night. Uh, yes, last night. And this was, I, I mean, I, I laughed out loud when I saw this. I, I was like, this can't be real. And this is exactly the point that I was just making. So we're discussing ESG, environmental social governance, and how they measure the success of these programs, right? So the only way that would work is if that's honest, right? If these are standards that we all agree on, that people everywhere, you know, that they can't be politically manipulated or voted on by power to decide, well, we can in include this or that because we decide, well, it's already happening. Here is Bloomberg. Weapons group, group points to Ukraine in bid to shape ESG rulebook. And yeah, it's, it's just as dumb as that sounds. Check this out. This says, with a, with a Russian invasion on the doorstep, Europe now finds itself discussing whether weapons, 
should be listed as ESG assets. Why? To grant them more favorable access to financing. Now, you can read this article for yourself. The point is they lay out how the weapons industry is complaining about how they're not getting financing with this new green direction. And so all they do, well, we'll make weapons green, of course, right? And, if you, and it's, it's absolutely baffling to me the way they lay this out. And if you read it, what they're trying to literally argue, I think the point was, uh, this list includes guidelines on pay, gender, equality, humane supply chains. And what they're basically saying is we're going to discuss, uh, I think it's the next one, that weapons ultimately are sustainable. Right. I mean, you can read the article yourself. I'll include the show. You know, that is, that is the, that is, I'm glad you brought that up. I hadn't seen it yet, but that is a perfect example of why this ESG is mostly BS, right? Because yeah, exactly. it, it, that is literally the meme coming to life, showing the drones, dropping the bombs, but it has an LGBTQ, Black Lives right. Matter, whatever on it. It's like, oh, it's all sustainable. It's diverse, whatever. Yeah, that's a perfect example because in what world would we, would any thinking person believe that weapons of war are environmentally sustainable? Or socially justice and, you know, okay, well, at least they have a decentralized board of directors, right? Or they give, you know, X amount of dollars to this conservative conservation fund or something, right? That's the point you made in the article, right? So now you've got these horrible companies that are selling weapons of war to literally the worst people alive. And yet they can spend a bunch of money on one social justice thing and say, see, we're good people. And you can vote on us because of that, right? To pretend weapons, something that is beyond a doubt only destructive. There's no gain from this. That's how they try to bend it. Well, because we're bombing for freedom, you're actually increasing sustainability. Like it's just backward 1984 disgusting logic. It's war is peace, ignorance is strength. Weapons are destructive. They're killing people around the world. They do nothing but destroy resources, people, lives. And they are trying to bend this into being sustainable because it's their bread and butter. And if you think that they can do that for weapons, ask yourself what they can't do. I mean, it would be anything, anything they want to warp it to. So to go back to the point about your article, it's just obvious that this is meaningless. It comes down to the same people in power making choices based on what benefit them and just simply framing it or warping the situation to make it look as if they're making the right choice. Absolutely. And and um, I'll, I'll move forward to the next part of the article. We kind of already covered. Again, I'm ready for the 30-second clip of my words, but I did get, put a paragraph in there with the actual – Honest truth that this could be used in some positive example. If we really sat down and thought about it, we could dream up pos- you know, positive use cases. It doesn't mean it will be used, but I think that's worth acknowledging if we're being right. honest. So I put that in there. Um, and then I also kind of get into the next part here, which is that clearly, as we've been saying, that's not what the case is going to be. The reality appears to be different than this imagined based case scenario. And so I provide this example. Let's imagine the social impact investor wanted to bet that elementary children will fail and not achieve higher grades. You know, they promote it as like, oh, we're going to do social good. But maybe for one reason or another, they don't want people to succeed or they hedge their bets and they they bet that they're going to fail and succeed just to make sure they make money either way. Right. And they decide that they do some mathematical equation that says, yeah, it's it's better for our bottom line. Let's just go ahead and do both. Or, you know, let's focus on this end because it seems more likely based on all of our stats or whatever. Right. In that situation, an investor might be incentivized to discourage positive outcomes and instead seek a profit by encouraging negative outcomes. And again, if you if this sounds preposterous to people, then you should go back to pre-2008 and see that investors were using financial tools to make profits off the losses and bankruptcy of individual homeowners. You know, who would have thought that people would really choose to do that? But it happened. Just to quickly make sure people don't miss this, really important what you just said there, Derek, is that it, what he's saying is not just that they will be betting on it but actually potentially, and this is what 2008 other things showed, taking real world action to make sure those elementary children do fail so that they profit. That's the thing. That's the kind of thing that people would say, you're crazy. That's conspiracy theory, despite the fact that things like this have happened endlessly in, in 
not just U.S. history, right? I mean, it's just very clear that the banks, I mean, think they're been caught for human trafficking, for drug trafficking. It's the same point, right? And just because they're, I mean, it's anyway, it's just making sure you understand that these are people that would take real world action that would hurt people in order to profit from it, just like 2008. Absolutely. And um, so I, I'll just read one other little part here. Maybe we can skip a little further ahead after this, because there's a good section here that I, I don't want to read the whole quote there, but it's from another journalist, Tim Scott, who writes for Dissident Voices. He was talking about this in November 2016. So it was pretty cool to see he was kind of ahead of the game there. But what he what I put here is that these new financial tools, which are being wielded by philanthropists or corporations, in the name of public-private partnership, seem to be nothing more than an advancement of the corruption employed by previous generations of philanthropists. And this is something that I've covered in articles I've written over the years, but also most recently in my documentary series, The Pyramid of Power. If anybody wants to see that, go to thepyramidofpower.net. But you can see my episode on um, the education system, and then we have an upcoming episode on the foundations. And when you really look into the history of the philanthropists, which we've covered in our Bill Gates series as well, and the Rockefellers, it's the same old thing, right? That they rebrand themselves. And, you know, Bill Gates was one of the most hated men in 1999. Then he started the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now he's been given charity money all over the world. And he's given to media and been able to recreate this whole image. This is the same ploy by that same class of people. And I do think Tim Scott in his article, he does a good job of kind of going back and even uh, relating it to that this whole mission is connected to the IMF, the World Bank, the United States government and other governments. And um, he even points out that it was the Rockefellers themselves in 2007, the Rockefeller Foundation, that organized two meetings of different so-called leaders of finance and philanthropy to, quote, build the structural framework for an efficient worldwide social and environmental impact investment industry. So that goes all the way back to 2007. Right. And then this eventually led to the creation of what's called the Global Impact Investment Network, which is a nonprofit tax exempt organization based in the U.S. in 2009. And so that was really the beginning because the Global Impact Investment Network is made up of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Ford Foundation, Deutsche Bank, and on and on and on, right? So this has been in the works for a good while, right? This isn't just something that's just popping up overnight. Um, but yeah, I think that's important to remember. Well, let me let me know, Derek. I know that you uh, are, are limited on time today. So let me know. We could always get to the, the ivermectin discussion in another interview if you'd like, because this is really important. But just let me know, because I, I do want to... I've got about 20 minutes or so for sure I could do. Okay, well, let, let's finish the rest of this article, because I do think this is really important. And I, so This is the good stuff here. Yeah, and, and, and make sure this last part you don't miss here is that people realize that many of these same groups you just listed, Bill and Melinda Gates and Goldman Sachs and so on, are also the ones investing and working with the World Economic Forum and, and, and the great pushing for the Great Reset. I mean, this is obviously tied together. And so the next part, it gets in as it reads the nexus of social credit scores and social impact finance. So, this is, I think, this is like how it comes together, right? So now we've outlined social credit, what that looks like, and this tool of social impact, and you bring it together. And one of the ways that I think is important um, is... I looked at this speech from Charles Hoskinson at the World Economic Forum in January 2020. Um, Hoskinson, for those who aren't familiar, he is the co-founder of the Ethereum blockchain and a founder of this more recent blockchain called Cardano. And again, there are people like Allison who have been pointing out some of his statements he's made over the years, which definitely seem to like, okay, is this guy just a, a 
like a lot of maniacal people? Does he really think that he's doing something good? Does he not see the potential danger? And I think that some of these people, you have to really listen closely to what they say because they don't just come out and say, we're going to enslave people. They come out and like subtly say these things. And again, I mean, I would love to interview this guy and kind of poke and prod a little deeper. I can't claim to be in his mind or anything like that. Um, but I do think what he said at this speech is worth mentioning. And one other point I'll make before I dive into that is in, in the regards to the nuance department that I see this tendency in our community for people to say, well, so-and-so spoke at the World Economic Forum or so-and-so spoke at the United Nations. And it's important. I've never been. So, I mean, but from what I can gather and what I've seen is that the World Economic Forum as an event is a massive event. It's at this giant hotel in Davos. Yeah, there's one main room with Klaus and all those big people, but there's also a lot of side rooms. There's other hotels that are considered part of the event. So somebody might have spoke at some back room with 10 people in it at the World Economic Forum one time in their life and never been invited back again and not be a part of the club. But some people see that like so-and-so is at the World Economic Forum. They must automatically be part of the club. Now, right. that is something we should look at. But I do think, right. again, we have to ha a, like approach it with nuance. And so I don't know that. That's all. It yeah, comes exactly. Like, I don't think evidence. everybody that ever, has ever spoken at the World Economic Forum is automatically a bad person. I think that's a bad tactic or a research right. way to to approach things. Oh, you've been to this one thing one time in your life that taints you forever, right? It look matters, at their, not, look at their work. Like you know, right. that's just one piece of the puzzle, right? So I just right. wanted to make that point. But totally. what he, what he says here is what matters. So he talks about a couple of things. He talks about how blockchains can track the production of a coffee plant from field to factory, which will allow from true accountability and transparency for corporations, investors, and customers, um, which I, I think, again, this is that that could be useful. He explains that investors want to know how their funds are going to do good in the world and that they have limited ability to follow the money at the present. He says, quote, how do you track that? How do you trace that? How do you make sure that the money is? Yeah, and how do you make sure the money is actually going into the right hands? Right. Um, and again, I think that, OK, like if. If you were, if you, you see the TV commercials uh, or people who used to watch TV, you see them like, hey, give to some charity that's going to help kids in Africa. And people just blindly give their money without any ever accountability, right? So maybe in a world where you wanted real accountability, where you can literally, here's where my money started and it went to the company and then the company distributed that. And now it's a tree or whatever, right? Like you can actually track what I could see how that could be useful. But again, you got to look at the subtleties of how he's explaining this. Hoskinson explains that governments of Ethiopia and Georgia are tracking and tracing the use of tax revenue to make sure that it goes to the proper departments and how this same technology could be used to track and trace donations or investments. He talks about global citizenship with a self-sovereign identity connected to a property portfolio with a reputation rating, which is a social credit score, right. and a payment system. And then this is where he says, so you can now directly pay people who are registered and you can track and trace what they do with those funds. Um, so and that's a little scary over with the social credit idea because they don't want yes. you to see these connected, but the idea is that we can track and trace and that's all good and fine, but then they will also be grading you based on who you funded and who you invested exactly. in and what you said. Exactly. And the other bigger thing, I don't know if we mentioned this, but the ESG it's being promoted at the moment as relating to corporations, but many of us suspect that ultimately the ESG will be applied to each of us as individuals. Are you as an individual living up to the environmental, social and governance right. standards, whatever they may be, right? They're telling you right there, it's going to reshape everything, right? This is, this is yeah. their, it's their re reimagining. <laughs> it's 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 going to be a huge part. So um, so Hoskinson continues. He says they're going to build a global stock market, a global venture capital for the poorest people in the world. So he says they're going to implement so-called self-sovereign identity and, quote, pair that with tracking and traceability and the ability to know that people are spending money correctly. correctly. That's the that's the key word. Right. Wow. And so he promises this is going to create, quote, 
the safest, most audible investments in the world for the poorest people in the world in the next 10 to 20 years. And this is the rest of the article is just me kind of picking apart, which we've already done here that for one, the multiple use of tracking and tracing terms, uh, saying things like making sure that the money is going to the right people, that they're spending it correctly, uh, which again is according to the terms which would be set by the social impact investors as part of their original investment or their original arrangement. That's how that would um, uh, work. Right. And well, just... it's influenced by politics that are influencing that entire direction to begin with, right? And that's, that's the main point is that it's going to be subjective based on what they lay down and not necessarily what's good or bad, if that even has the meaning we think it does. Exactly. So I'll just read this last paragraph here because I think it puts it all together. So if, for example, philanthropist contributes to a program to help out recipients of welfare programs, they might like the opportunity to track and trace the use of their funds from their investment all the way to the individual recipient. So if a person on social security receives funds via a social impact investment, social impact bond, the company or the board of investors might eventually determine that the person's individual lifestyle or their choices are not conducive to positive outcomes. Like, well, we're tracking the money. We went and it gave it to this person on social welfare so they can do good things, but we're noticing they're eating at McDonald's all the time or they smoke cigarettes or this and that. And, you know, that is going to affect our investment. That's going to affect our, our ability to do this. So we're going to have to, reduce the amount of money we give them this month uh, unless they correct that behavior, things like that. So when combined with a reputation system as called for by Hoskinson, this could mean that welfare recipients are punished by their personal for their personal lifestyle choices if deemed detrimental to the goals of the social impact bond. And this is the type of social engineering that is possible with social credit and social impact finance. I think you're muted, brother. Thank you for that. Now imagine if and when governments get involved in this process directly. And yeah, they're already doing that through the public-private partnership. But how about the government of the U.S. just goes, you know what, we want to take a huge step and support this big agenda. The point is that you're, if you then go afoul of what they decided with your money is the right direction, then you get you get hurt for it. You know, it's just, it, it, there's a thousand ways this goes in the same direction, it seems. And it just, it obviously le leads up to more centralized control over lots of things, uh, more than they have today. Like actually you're at your choices you make in your home, choices you make on your phone, like the things that before necessarily weren't, at least on the surface, tied to everything else. This is a really alarming step this is going in. And that brings us to this sovereign slave or sovereign identity idea, which yeah. I think is really important. And I love your idea, your points about how they're using these words, because I want to I want to mention that as well. But go ahead Absolutely. and explain for us what the sovereign identity is. And Yeah. Before I jump into that, if I could just share the screen for one moment, yeah. I just want to show you something that I just found uh, this morning. And this is just while we, we still have ESG in our mind. This is on the World Economic Forum website listed on the Davos agenda about what they just discussed at the Davos meeting in January. Uh, venture capital. There goes. Go ahead. Venture capital must embed ESG to back the companies of the future. And we don't even need to read it. It's just like, here's another example. This is, as you see, Global Agenda, Davos Agenda 2022, Stakeholder Capitalism, ESG. It's all the buzzwords right there, right? And Global Agenda. Um, it's just so funny how obviously there's, yes, we are trying to change the world for you, but it's for good reasons. So you're a conspiracy theorist. You know, it's, it's, we are not, look, people like us are not necessarily saying we have opinions about their intentions. But we're simply going, look, these are unelected people that are trying to reshape your world and it's not your choice. You're a conspiracy theorist, but that's exactly what they're saying. That's what I don't understand about how weirdly obvious it is. They call you you're crazy or call it a, a conspiracy theory and then the next day sell it as the best thing for our future. Like it's just it's, it's incredible to me right now. 
Yeah. So I am getting down to my last 10 minutes here. So, oh, brother, so let's yeah, dive into the sovereign part. And then I would love to come back and talk about the Mexico. I remember yeah. thing. Cause I do think that is an overlooked story. And, uh, right. but yeah. Right. So the point I wanted to make with this, the reason, because I've seen, um, I saw this name sovereign self-identity pop up twice when, um, Charles Hoskins talking about. It. So I was like, what is he talking about? Is that actually a thing? I looked it up. Sovereign self-identity was a project launched by IBM. And obviously that's like a red flag for me for the most part, right. IBM involved, but it involves the creation of a privately held identity, which is owned by the individual as opposed to government sanctioned identification. And again, this is something that I think when it's not done by IBM, if done correctly, could be a wonderful thing, right? People like myself who don't want governments to be the you know arbiters of where I can travel and where I can go. Imagine a world where you don't have a government issued passport, but you have a you know, individual ID that still can tell people, hey, I'm a real person. This is who I am. If you need to know those things about me, but you have control of that, right? And it's not issued from the government. That sounds like a wonderful idea. It could be useful in a number of different ways. I just don't think uh, that's possible in the world we have today, but I agree. Yeah, with it, it's, it's, yeah. it's probably not. It's probably yeah. realistically not because just the way things are, are uh, set up at the moment, but that's what they're trying to promote it as. So this would be achieved by individuals securely storing their own identity. So this is like if you have a crypto wallet, you got it, you're only your ID on your own phone or your own USB or whatever, right? You're on your personal devices. And if somebody needs to validate who you are and you choose to, then you would show them that ID. And this doesn't uh, involve a central uh, data repository, right? So again, this could be useful if in a different world. But we dive deeper into it. And IBM partnered with the Sovereign Foundation in 2018. The Sovereign Foundation is the organization that is working on this so-called sovereign self-identity. And they describe themselves as the people who are going to build the identity uh, combining blockchain private ID, et cetera, right? So you see blockchain, private ID coming together. They're even using the word sovereign, which makes people think that it must be free. And 2018, they partnered with IBM. Later in 2018, they announced a partnership with the World Economic Forum to bring about a digital ID program. You're seeing the same players now. And uh, the World Economic Forum, as I mentioned earlier, and Sovereign Foundation specifically promote that this is about bringing in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals to establish a digital identity for all people by 2030. So you can see, you know, and I kind of dove in deeper into it. I went and looked into the Sovereign Foundation's white paper, which they called the inevitable rise of self-sovereign identity. And they kind of describe how this could happen. But it's important to pay attention to certain keywords, right? Not just take these people for their word. Right. And again, we see the use of this reputation economy, which is exactly what Charles Hoskinson had said in his, his talk. So they, in their white paper, it says, quote, as an individual's or organization's sovereign identity builds up over time, so does their reputation. Stepping up from a low trust level to a higher trust level happens seamlessly as more verified attributes and claims are accumulated by the identity owner. This reputation becomes an asset of the identity owner. For example, an individual may choose to reveal their reputation to others to establish or reinforce trust, or an organization may publish its sovereign-based reputation ratings as a badge of honor. So they're talking about private ID held on a private blockchain which only the holder, the individual reveals to the third parties, but it's clear that this could be used in nefarious purposes. And I think that they're associated with IBM, World Economic Forum, makes it clear that when they talk about distributed, decentralized, private, that I don't think they're using those terms in the same way that most of us would be using them. Just like, and I make this point here, just as the elitists in the World Economic Forum and the United Nations, they mask their agenda with use of the words sustainable, diverse, equitable, etc., they are not using those in the same way. They're attempting to hijack language of 
the individual liberty and bodily autonomy community, the freedom community, the health community, basically like health freedom community, they're trying to co-opt that language. That doesn't mean the word sovereign is a bad word and that we shouldn't right. use it or the word freedom is a bad word. We shouldn't use it or even the word sustainable. I mean, I noticed that when I talk about environmental things like permaculture, some people immediately like oh, agenda 2030, right. you know, they, they can't distinguish between this, but that's what these people want too, is they want to confuse our languages. And uh, I kind of made the point here. I said, if we don't fight to preserve the true meanings of these words, we are allowing the technocrats to continue their word manipulation, double speak, insanity. And if we're not careful, these criminals will erase and pervert the meaning of these concepts so that future generations don't know what it means to be a sovereign, free, autonomous human being. I made this point last night, and this is probably where it was in my mind from this article. It's just that, just like sustainable, exactly. It doesn't mean sustainable is a bad word. It just means they're using it to make us think it's bad and using it. And what they're doing is not sustainable at all. In fact, just like this, sovereign is something that they're already trying to undermine. They've already gone after the whole sovereign citizen concept, whatever your opinions are of that. You know, the idea that this is, they're trying to undermine the very idea of whatever you perceive as sovereignty. I mean, think about it right now as they're you know, promoting like basically everything the U.S. government does around the world violates people's sovereignty on a regular basis, except now they're upset about other people doing it. It's just it's subjective as always. And I want to make sure people check out your book that you've written, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, a very important article from today. And before we, we jump out of here, I wanted to show this as well. Interesting correlation to the same time, 2018, when the sovereign discussion was starting. Here is the European Union's outline from 2018, showing you that in, you know, by by 2021, 2022, weirdly enough, they already knew they would have vaccination cards, passports. You know, I guess they were just that prescient, right? They knew they they were psychic. Yeah. They could see it coming, right? They, and they, nobody wants to discuss this in the mainstream circles because it obviously shows you they had a map. This is literally called the roadmap for the implementation of these actions. Exactly. It's incredible. And I, I believe I wrote an article for T-Lab about that as well. People can yeah. find, like you said, the mainstream's not talking about it, but we've been talking about it since the beginning. We've been calling this out. You know, I want to just take a moment to say that for one, I mean, I, I'll just have a moment of like, Hey, I'm proud of my work because in May, 2020, I wrote the article telling people the airlines organizations are already talking about a vaccine passport. So don't even think it's not happening there. Are, and this roadmap proves it as well, that they've been working on these digital ID plans, vaccine passports, but it's all part of the same machine. So I know that we've said a whole lot today, and I hope everybody will listen to this conversation a couple of times and really grasp it because these concepts are important. Social credit, social impact finance, ESG, uh, obviously technocracy, and how this relates to the greater reset. Yeah, there it is. Immunity passport back in what May 2020, we were telling everybody it was happening. Right. Um, so these things are all a part of the same same system here, the same machine. And these are the things that Ted Kaczynski and others have been warning us about for a while. I point out also John Trudell. He's a native activist who was warning people back in the 70s as well he called it the techno logic is how he liked to put it you know that the, it, it erases the logic and the human yeah. and um you know i think that again technology is a tool we both embrace it we both use it every day and we, and we value it and we see the the positives that come out of it we reach thousands of hundreds of thousands maybe millions of people over the years right that wouldn't be possible without certain types of technology but we can also hold that position and still ask real important nuanced questions about this technology, not take a black and white approach, not take an all or nothing, you know, pick this side or that side approach, but just say, hey, how do we, how are we going to choose as humans to interact with this world that is very quickly and rapidly emerging around us? That's going to be something that each of us has to decide on our own. 
absolutely well put. I think that's exactly where we should leave it. That's the sentiment that we should be thinking throughout this entire conversation, nuance being the key word and, and objectivity. Now, I also wanted to make sure before we were going to get into it deeper, but let's make sure we revisit your article around the ivermectin discussion but sometime in the next you know near future. But I also want to give a shout out on the way out here, brother, about your excellent work on the Greater Reset. We'll talk more about this on the next interview. But, you know, some great people, James Corbett, Ben Swan, RFK Jr., you know, really outstanding speakers. And this is about the greater reset, the people's reset, about the fact that there is other directions other than what they want to frame as the only step forward. And I also just wanted to give, let maybe just if you wanted to on the way out, you know, you have a lot of really great work you're doing here in regard to just real world action. You're doing a lot of tours and, you know, the activation tour, the, 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 uh, the, um, the rallies that you and I did that I, I did as yeah. part of your push. And there's a lot of great stuff you're doing. So if you want to just give us a shout out on the way out about what you want people to check out and uh, looking forward to the next interview, man. Absolutely. I definitely want to come back and talk more about Mexico, ivermectin, and just the situation. I think a lot of people would be interested in that. And I appreciate that. Yeah, my website for anybody who hasn't caught on yet is theconsciousresistance.com. And I'm not as active on a daily basis like Ryan. Thankfully, he's keeping us informed. But I do put out weekly videos, uh, weekly video reports and podcasts and interviews talking about all of these topics. And we also host, you know, a wide range of content, as you can see right there. Miriam, my partner, she's organizing a, a meditation for peace with all this insanity later this month. Um, I'm also on tour right now, traveling across Mexico. And if you want to find out that, just go to theconsciousresistance.com. You can check out our documentaries. You can check out my books for free. You can see all the work I've done over the years. And I very much appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, man. You're doing outstanding work. Well, thank, thank you for being here, Derek. And, I, you know, these are important conversations and I always enjoy them. So I'm looking forward to the next one. Well, Absolutely. as always, thank you, brother. As always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. And I have to say, um, when I mention our names, like this Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Mm-hmm. But... Um, what we are very proud of now is the young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of, Brez- of uh, Argentina and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was at a, rece- at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I know that half of this cabinet or even more half of, uh, half of this cabinet are for our actually young global leaders of the world economic forum. That's true in Argentina as well. It's true in Argentina and uh, it's true in France now. Mm -hmm. I'm here with the president who is a young global leader, but... And so who do we have as we walk, uh, Klaus, in uh, in the different meetings? What type of uh, stakeholders do we have, the constituencies? Stakeholders, we have... uh, If if I look at our stakeholders, we have business, uh, of course, as a very important audience, and we have politics, we have uh, uh, continuous uh, uh, partnerships with many governments around the world, and of course we have NGOs, uh, we have trade unions, we have all those different parts. Media, of course. Media, of course, and very important um, experts and scientists and academia, because if we are looking at the future, I think we should look at new solutions, and the new solutions will be very much driven by technological uh, developments. And we even have, uh, you even have religious leaders, right? We have religious leaders, we have social entrepreneurs, very important social entrepreneurs.
the difficulty which we have is to create a consensus in a very empowered world. And that's what we stand for, for the process to integrate people and to create such a consensus. Thank you very much, Klaus. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you.